Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. Later, we will conduct a question and answer session, and instructions will follow at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star than zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. At this time, I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training in Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Well, thank you so much, Candace, and I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Connect Education Workshop, and today's program is called Understanding Diagnostic Technologies and Biomarkers in the Treatment of Lung Cancer. And today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer, care, many other cancer organizations, including some lung cancer organizations, Free to Breathe, LungCancer.org, Lung Cancer Alliance, Longevity Foundation. And I really want to thank them for their collaborative effort um, in today's program. And it's because of that collaboration and your interest in the program today that we've been able to reach so many of you on the call today. We have over 631 participants on the call today, and you come from all over the United States. And we have international participants from Canada, India, and the United Kingdom. So it's really a credit to each of you that you've chosen to spend the next hour with us. Now, today's program was supported by Boringer Ingelheim Pharmaceuticals, Inc., an independent educational grant from Merck and Company, Inc., and I really want to thank them for their support of this program and also for their corporate partnership in making this program possible. Now, we have wonderful speakers on the program today, and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Heather Wakeley. Dr. Wakeley is Associate Professor, Department of Medicine, Division of Oncology, Stanford University, Stanford Cancer Institute. And Dr. Wakeley is going to address an overview of diagnostic technologies and biomarkers in the treatment of lung cancer and how these technologies improve treatment decisions and your care. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to Dr. Wakeley. Thanks, Carolyn. It's a pleasure to be on this call. Um, and to really ad address um, these topics of diagnostic technologies and the treatment of lung cancer, because really over the past decade, these technologies and our better understanding of what we find with them have really revolutionized what we're able to do to help patients who are living with lung cancer. So I want to start by mentioning that when someone gets a diagnostic, a diagnostic um, a diagnosis of lung cancer, um, there are a couple of key questions that we ask. Um, the first one is around the stage. Uh, and as soon as we've established that, we then think about what is the histology, meaning what is the type of lung cancer. And the, figuring out the type of lung cancer is something that really hasn't changed much, uh, but it remains important and more so because of variations in treatment that we have. So the first question we ask is whether this is small cell lung cancer or non-small cell. If it ends up being non-small cell lung cancer, we used to group all of those together, but now it's important to divide that into adenocarcinoma, squamous cell carcinoma, uh, and then some of the others which we often treat like in adeno. And that's important for some of the chemotherapy drugs that we have because certain of those only work in patients with the non-squamous or the mostly adeno type. So that's the first question that we have, and that's really something that's done by the pathologist, and we will be hearing um, from a pathologist later in this call about the work that's done there, and that's usually done with a biopsy. So getting a, a tissue biopsy, which is usually done with a needle um, or with a minor surgery, remains really, really important when someone is diagnosed with lung cancer to help us figure out, first and foremost, that question of histology. However, we've moved beyond that to looking at even more uh, tests in someone with a new diagnosis of lung cancer to better understand that cancer. Now, this testing goes back about a decade now for the tissue, 
And the first, uh, first test that we knew to look for is something called EGFR, or Epidermal Growth Factor Receptor. And we discovered this back in around 2004, uh, that was when some of the first papers came out. And the reason that happened was that there were some pill drugs developed that were pills that targeted this EGFR protein and gene. And we knew that uh, that that protein, the EGFR protein, was at high levels in a lot of lung tumors and at higher levels in the tumors than in a, a lot of other parts of the body. And so it seemed like it would be a good thing to go after. So these pills were developed and patients with lung cancer were treated. And it turned out that maybe 10% of all patients with lung cancer had really great responses to these pill drugs, these EGFR-targeted drugs, which led people to think, hmm, what, how are these people different? And so additional testing was done, and we were able to figure out that some patients with lung cancer have a gene change in the EGFR gene. This is not something that's found in the rest of their body. It's something that's just in the tumor. When we find that EGFR gene change, it gives us treatment options that we uh, don't have for patients without that. And these treatment options are pills that hit EGFR. This is important to figure out um, early in the course of someone's treatment for lung cancer because there have now been multiple clinical trials where patients whose tumor have this EGFR mutation either were treated with an EGFR-targeted pill or were treated with chemotherapy for their very first treatment. And in all of those trials, it's become very clear that starting treatment with that EGFR-targeted drug increases the likelihood that the tumor is going to shrink and also provides a longer time of treatment before we need to make a switch. Now, it doesn't mean that chemotherapy is bad. Chemotherapy can be very helpful for patients with or without this EGFR mutation, but when we can find it and find it early in the diagnosis, it changes our treatment options. As people continue on their, their treatment with EGFR therapy, usually eventually they'll need to switch to something else, and that's where chemotherapy can play a role, or we now have other EGFR-targeted drugs that we know can work after the first ones do, and I'll come back to that. I wanted to next, though, talk about some of the other gene changes. So EGFR was the first one we found out about. It really opened our eyes to a new way of thinking about lung cancer. But it's not for all patients with lung cancer. It's maybe about 10% of all patients with lung cancer have that gene mutation. But as we found out about that one, we started looking for others. And the two that we know to look for now in, in almost all patients who are diagnosed with lung cancer, especially the adenocarcinoma type, is to look for EGFR and something called ALK, or ALK. Those are the first two have been discovered and, um, and developed. And in both cases, we now know that if you can find one of those gene changes, if you start with the targeted agent instead of chemo, patients tend to do a little bit better. And it also provides other opportunities for treatment later. If we don't look, we don't know. And so it's really become a standard approach that anyone with newly diagnosed lung cancer should be tested for EGFR and ALK. But that's not the whole story. So as research has continued, we've now found multiple other genes where when we find them, gene changes in tumors, and if we find them, we can offer different treatment options to our patients, usually in the form of pill drugs. In fact, just this week in clinic, I had two patients who had been tested for EGFR and ALK, did not think that they had a gene mutation, were on their chemotherapy, and we went back and did additional testing and found that they had other mutations. One had something called MET, M-E-T. Another one was something called RET, R-E-T. We also look for um, ROS mutations and BRAF mutations. I won't go through the whole list because it gets a bit overwhelming. But 
where we've evolved now in the treatment of lung cancer is that we know to look up front with quick testing for EGFR and ALK, but we also know it's important to do more in-depth testing for many patients with lung cancer to look at the gene changes behind the tumor. And when we do that, we can find specific gene changes in over half of the tumors. So it's really encouraged now that patients get additional testing with what we call next-gen sequencing of the tumors. So that would be something to, to really think about doing if that hasn't been done in, in the case of the, the folks listening here. Um, another era uh, is working, instead of just looking at the tissue or the tumor, with the biopsies, there's now been a lot of work in developing blood tests. Um, and the thought behind that is that tumors can shed cells into the blood, so there's been work trying to find those tumor cells in the blood. And now more recently, the idea that the tumors actually, when they break apart, are releasing bits of DNA into the blood. And so now we've been able to develop tests where we can look for the tumor-specific DNA in the blood and look for specific gene mutations. This is not yet widely available, but the uh, expectation is that in the next few years, we will have those blood tests available to look for these gene mutations and to guide treatment over time. And so that's going to be a big improvement for folks over doing the tissue biopsies. The last topic I want to mention briefly um, uh, after leaving the, the blood marker, and I will mention that the blood marker is probably the furthest along right now, has to do back with that EGFR. Remember, I I'd mentioned that with EGFR, we know how to find it at the beginning, but we know that those mutations can change over time with treatment. And they're now blood tests to look for those gene changes that happen to EGFR when resistance develops. So that's something called T790M. And so that is uh, an important change for people living with EGFR-mutated lung cancer, is to be able to do these blood tests for the T790M. The tissue testing can still be important also, but the blood test is another opportunity to look for that early. So the last thing I want to mention is about the immune therapy, because that's something everyone's talking about in lung cancer, because of the excitement there. The um, tests to figure out who's going to benefit from the um, immune drugs are still somewhat in development. There are a protein, a protein called PDL1, that can be tested in a multiple different ways. Um, and we're still trying to figure out what's the best way to do that, because each of the, the checkpoint drugs or the PD1, PDL1 drugs have a different way of looking at that um, protein on the surface of the tumors from biopsies that are drawn. So there's still a lot of um, different ways of looking at it. And I just wanted to let the audience know that if you get a result that says it's PDL1 negative, that doesn't necessarily mean that you won't be able to get benefit from the immune drugs. There are a lot of different ways of testing for it. And we know that at this point, the tests aren't perfect, such that some people who are tested negative actually can still have a response. So just uh, to, to mention that so that people are aware that this should be an ongoing discussion around the pdl one testing, and that there's a lot of work being done to develop even better immune-targeted um, ways of testing to see who might benefit. Um, and so with that, I'm going to close and turn this over to some of our other speakers who I know will be addressing some of these topics, too. So thank you. Oh, thank you very much, Dr. Wakeby. That was really outstanding and just very comprehensive. So I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A. And, and thanks for making the, this complicated call more understandable to everybody right from the outset. So thank you. Um, our next speaker is Dr. Justin Gaynor. Dr. Gaynor is Instructor, Department of Medicine, Harvard Medical School, Assistant in Medicine, Massachusetts General Hospital. And Dr. Gaynor is going to address why the molecular portrait of lung cancer is important and the benefits of diagnostic technologies, biomarkers, and personalized care in predicting response to treatment. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to Dr. Gaynor. 
Well, thank you, Carolyn. Uh, I wanted to spend a few minutes just talking a little bit about the benefits of biomarkers in the treatment of lung cancer. I think Dr. Wakeley gave us a terrific overview of some of the major themes uh, that, have been, that we've been exploring in lung cancer. I'd like to take a step back, though, and just talk very briefly, you know, wh what is this word biomarker? What does it mean? Um, a biomarker can take many different shapes and forms, but, but at its core, a biomarker is simply a test that uh, can provide information about a biological event or process. Uh, we're going to be spending a most of our time now talking about predictive biomarkers. These are really tests that can inform whether someone will or will not uh, respond to therapy. I do want to, to mention, though, that these are not always perfect. Um, Dr. Wakeley gave the uh, mentioned this PDL1 test, and I think that's the prime example of a biomarker that has some benefit, but it's not perfect. And that even though people can be negative for that test, they can still derive substantial benefit uh, to things like immunotherapy. So I just wanted to, to now go on to, you know, what are some of the emerging uh, targets in lung cancer? So as you've heard, you know, it's now routine for anyone with a new lung cancer diagnosis, uh, particularly patients with advanced disease, to have testing for two, two genes, EGFR and ALK. And really this field has moved at lightning speed. Dr. Wakeley mentioned that EGFR was first discovered in 2004. Should mention that ALK was discovered in lung cancer in 2007. And just in the last several years, we have three different drugs that have been approved by the FDA for the treatment of ALK alone. So you can see just, just from the time that it was initially discovered to development of drugs to target it, as well as conduct of the clinical trials, this is moving at lightning speed. And what we've tried to do is take that paradigm, that, that approach, and apply it to other, uh, other genetic alterations in lung cancer. And what we've found is that many of, most of these genetic changes are mutually exclusive. So if you have one, you generally don't have the other. And so while EGFR and ALK are, are the ones that are, are most readily targetable in the clinic, we've been looking to identify other potential targets that, that we can then use the same approach and use these pill-directed therapies. Now, Dr. Wakeley mentioned several by name. Um, I think the farthest along is, is ROS1. Um, this is found in a very small subset of patients, but it's, it's an alteration where we can actually repurpose one drug. So one of the ALK drugs also targets this ROS1. And so we can take everything we know about one of the genetic changes and apply it to the other. And so uh, now in the last several years, we've been able to identify different patient populations and truly try to personalize uh, treatment of lung cancer. And I think in the coming weeks, one of our big annual meetings is, is uh, in the first week of June, and we hope to hear about additional data for, for some newer targets, things like MET. Um, and so that should be very exciting. 
Now, one question then that I commonly get is, well, if, if these drugs work so well in patients with advanced disease, is there a role for uh, moving them up in terms of therapy? So should we, we be using these drugs in patients with earlier stages of cancer? So um, should we be using them in stage one cancer or stage two lung cancer? I would say that right now, uh, we're still conducting those studies. So what we, what we know about targeted therapies is that even though they are very effective, and we know that they're more active than chemotherapy, they're better tolerated, they also have better quality of life, that unfortunately they can't make a cancer go away completely. And so in earlier stages of cancer, we still have to use our, our tried and true techniques, things like surgery. Um, so most of these agents are being explored as after surgery. And the term that oncologists use for that is as adjuvant therapy, that is after a definitive technique. And uh, there are several now very large uh, national studies that are uh, looking into using these adjuvant targeted therapies. And we're beginning with, with the targets that we know the most about. So beginning with things like EGFR and ALK. And so uh, trying to incorporate uh, using genetic information uh, earlier in the disease course, because it makes sense that uh, why would you save uh, your most effective tool uh, uh, for later on? We want to really try to use those therapies earlier and prevent, uh, prevent the disease from coming back. Um, uh, another topic I'd like to mention is, is was already uh, alluded to uh, by Dr. Wakeley, which is use of blood-based tests. Now, uh, for, for patients in the audience, um, you're familiar with our, our typical approach has been to try to actually take a sample of the tumor via a biopsy. Um, that, that is invasive. Um, especially as we begin to do more biopsies because we know that cancers can change with our therapies. So we want to try to monitor what's happening with the cancer and trying to do it in real time. Um, we know that certain cancers can actually, um, as they die or, or even as they begin to grow, can release small fragments of their DNA into the bloodstream. And these are present in very, very small quantities but as our ability to measure uh, and, and sequence DNA has improved, we've actually been able to find these small fragments of DNA and actually find some of these targets. And I think this is going to play a role in a couple different ways over the next few years. I completely agree with Dr. Wakeley that uh, right now these, these tests are not ready for prime time. Uh, we're still doing the studies to validate uh, how well these tests perform. But our hope in the coming years is to use them in a couple different ways. I, I don't think that they're going to completely, completely replace doing an initial biopsy. And that's because while genetics can give us some information, it doesn't help us distinguish you know, the big groupings of lung cancer, small cell versus non-small cell and, and the subtypes like adenocarcinoma or not. Uh, a, a blood test won't help us distinguish those things. But where they can be very valuable is in patients who you know, 
can't undergo a biopsy for, for one reason or the other. Either uh, the cancer is in a location that's, that's too difficult to biopsy, or for one reason or the other, other medical conditions preclude a biopsy from being performed. So I think that's going to be one major, major um, use for these tests moving forward. The other is, is monitoring, uh, monitoring people um, as they receive targeted therapies. We know that cancer cells can evolve uh, and develop resistance to therapies. You've heard about one, this T790M. And so can we actually track that? Can we track the development of T790M even before uh, we see that there are things on the CT scan indicating that the cancer may be growing? So I think that's another, uh, another potential use of these circulating uh, tumor uh, DNA assays or tests. And then finally, um, you know, I, I did want to spend one minute and talk about, well, what if someone doesn't have one of these genetic alterations? Um, and, you know, that, that can certainly happen in, in a large group of people with lung cancer. So are, are there alternative therapies that can be targeted? Um, and I would say that the approach we've used uh, more recently has hinged on using the immune system to attack cancer. We know that the, the immune system can recognize cancer, and, and one of the ways that it's thought to happen is that you know, cancers can develop many genetic alterations. So, and as the cancers develop more mutations and genetic alterations, it begins to look more and more foreign. And ultimately, you know, in some people, the immune system can, can recognize those foreign, uh, those foreign proteins. It's not so simple as that. Uh, unfortunately, cancers can put up a number of barriers and camouflage to protect themselves from the immune system. Uh, but more recently, drugs targeting one of those breaks on the immune system have shown tremendous benefit in a subgroup of people with lung cancer. Um, and so I think a tremendous challenge for us in, in the field moving forward is to identify who's more uh, or less likely to respond to those immune therapies. And I think that's a subject of intense research right now that um, I think the whole community uh, is working really hard at. Um, and hopefully that, that will really um, expand our use of those drugs and, um, and uh, make them more effective, basically being able to target the populations that are most likely to benefit. And so uh, with that, I, I think my time is, is practically up, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to yield uh, um, to Carolyn. Oh, well, thank you so much, Dr. Gaynor. That was really wonderful. And, and just, again, um, building on what Dr. Wakeley had presented, so we have a consistent pattern here, and I hope people are taking in this because it's so helpful, and I appreciate all of your um, making this much more uh, layman's terms so people can understand what you're talking about. So thank you so much. Um, and I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A as well. And our next speaker is Dr. Sarah Kerr. And Dr. Kerr is a pathologist. She's Senior Associate Consultant, Division of Anatomic Pathology, Department of Laboratory Medicine and Pathology, Assistant Professor, Laboratory Medicine and Pathology, Mayo Clinic. And Dr. Kerr is going to address the role of the pathologist and how pathology reports help inform treatment planning. And I think what's unique about having Dr. Kerr on the call is that you often don't get to speak to your pathologist who's really, um, so she's going to actually give you kind of a 
really lots of information about what the pathologist does. So it's my pleasure now to turn this program over to Dr. Kerr. Thank you so much, Carolyn. Uh, I think that was just a fabulous overview by our prior two speakers, Dr. Wakeley and Dr. Gaynor, about the biomarkers that are tested in my laboratory and many pathologists' laboratories across the country for lung cancer. And so it's my pleasure to be able to draw attention to our work as, as doctors who work behind the scenes doing uh, all of these biomarker tests. And, and those doctors are called pathologists. And so I'll get into what a pathologist does as far as you know, how they're trained uh, and, and what we do on a day-to-day -day basis uh, to help with lung cancer care. So um, you'll be able to tell that I'm admittedly biased by being a pathologist myself, but I would argue that your pathologist may actually be the most important doctor involved in your lung cancer care that you, you'll never see. Um, and so let me put that a different way. Most of you will never know your pathologist that's involved in your care, and you don't get to choose your pathologist. But the decisions made by your pathologist are perhaps the most important drivers of what is recommended by your oncologist as far as a treatment plan. And so understanding the role of that pathologist in your care is useful, I think, in formulating important questions for your oncologist and other doctors that you see in person. Uh, so first of all, I'll start by talking about what a pathologist does in, in general. Um, Many of you may be more familiar with the pathologists that you see on TV that are involved in forensic, what's called forensic pathology or autopsy pathology, uh, specifically in the setting of criminal investigations. Um, autopsy is a really important part of a pathologist's training, but in practice, very few of us um, do the types of um, autopsies or practice that you see on popular crime shows. So on the contrary, most pathologists go to medical school just like your other doctors, but then choose to receive specialized training in clinical laboratory testing. Um, and, and it's important to note that this isn't research testing, it's rigorously regulated clinical testing that occurs in a laboratory that's associated with your doctor's office or hospital. And this specialized training in clinical laboratory testing lasts a minimum of three years and can go as long as seven years or more. So for example, I myself trained for seven years after medical school before starting work on my own as a pathologist. Um, four of those were called residency, where I spent time training in how to diagnose cancer and other diseases under a microscope, as well as supervise a laboratory where things like biomarker testing occur. And then um, two years I actually subspecialized in genetic testing specifically related to cancer and then spent another year doing um, training in how to diagnose cancer in very tiny specimens or cytology specimens. And so after this training then, a pathologist will go out and practice and typically oversee a variety of tests done in the clinical laboratory. And this can be anything from routine blood tests uh, to examining small tissue biopsies, as were mentioned before, um, body fluid testing, and, and then even sectioning and examining organ resections that are done for cancer. And this is why your pathologist is so important to your cancer care. There have actually been some studies on this that have stated that up to 80% of clinical decisions are actually based on laboratory test results. And so your pathologist works with laboratory staff and your clinical doctors to ensure the quality of the laboratory test results used in making most of the decisions in your care. 
uh, a pathologist often advises other physician colleagues on the best diagnostic methods to make these decisions and helps your physicians understand the complex laboratory results in difficult cases. And so with that general overview, I'll switch to lung cancer care specifically. Um, as a lung cancer patient, your first critical interaction with a pathologist probably happens when a tumor is detected on some sort of imaging scan uh, by another doctor called a radiologist. And your doctor then orders a tissue biopsy of the tumor to decide if surgery or some other medical therapy is right for you. And this may involve both uh, biopsies of the mass and biopsies of places where the tumor has potentially spread. Once this biopsy is performed then uh, by sometimes a radiologist, a lung doctor, or a surgeon, the tissue is then examined by a pathologist like myself under, under a microscope. And the, the microscope is then used to obtain information about where the cancer started and what type of cancer it is. So I like to talk about this using um, a non-cancer example. So I think of it this way. Um, if I see a bunch of carrots, a vegetable, I can tell you that that's a vegetable. But if I see an apple, for instance, I can tell you it's a fruit. So it's sort of like subtyping cancer. Um, after a careful examination of that apple then, I might be able to tell you that it's a particular type of apple, like a Granny Smith apple that's good for pie baking. Uh, and so the same is true for lung cancer. After looking at cells under a microscope, I can tell you that the, where the tumor probably started, for example, in the lung and not some other organ like your stomach. Um, and then I can also tell your doctor what specific type of lung cancer it is. And, and that's important. So I think as Dr. Wakeley had briefly touched on, for example, treatment plans for a type of lung cancer called small cell carcinoma is very different from the recommended treatment plan for squamous cell carcinoma or adenocarcinoma. And so by looking at the tumor under a microscope and using some other special tests on the cells, I'm usually able to provide this additional information about a tumor origin and type. And after looking at the tissue then, your pathologist creates a report that you can read and your doctors can read and discuss in, in, and use in, in decision making. And so uh, next I'll turn to a little bit different topic. So after confirming that the cancer started in the lung and determining the, the tumor type and figuring it out if it has spread, uh, the next step is determining a treatment plan. And this is where the biomarkers come in very early for lung cancer. So uh, in particular, if you have adenocarcinoma, um, the tumor and the tumor can't be potentially cured by surgery, then these biomarker tests are ordered. Um, and those biomarker tests are done in a clinical laboratory uh, setting under the supervision of a pathologist. Uh, so the pathologist is involved early uh, in that process by selecting the tissue specimen for testing and ensuring that there is enough tumor in the specimen to get a reliable result. Um, the biomarker testing is performed on the tumor tissue and, and that report also goes out to you and your doctors. Uh, and as you have heard from the prior speakers, a variety of different biomarkers are available to determine which therapy is likely to work best for your tumor. 
And these, these tests vary from very simple single gene tests like EGFR testing or ALK testing, um, but there are some larger tests that your oncologist may be or ordering that look at a variety of different biomarkers all at once. Um, one thing that a pathologist does, especially with these larger tests that test for a large number of biomarkers all at once, is that sometimes we get unexpected results with those tests where it isn't certain whether the genetic finding will predict response to therapy. And these unexpected test results in those larger panels are sometimes called what's uh, been termed variants of uncertain significance, or VUS. And uh, a pathologist who has specialized training in genetics works with other laboratory staff to analyze this unexpected finding and look carefully at the scientific literature to see if anyone else has had experience with this change in a tumor and, and uh, try to provide some information about whether that change could inform treatment planning. And then after weighing all of the evidence, a report on this complex genetic testing is then made to you and your doctor about whether this uncertain finding is likely to be important for you. And then finally, I'm going to move away from biomarkers and just talk about um, interpretation of uh, pathology in general and second opinions related to lung cancer care. I get a lot of questions from um, my family members and friends about, uh, you know, what I do and what second opinions mean in, in pathology versus other areas of medicine. Um, I would have to say that unfortunately, even with extensive training and certification, a pathologist's ability to classify a tumor under a microscope is not entirely perfect. I'll say that again. So, you know, when I look at a tumor under a microscope, um, my ability to classify it, say using the carrot versus apple analogy, is not always um, perfect or easy. And so in difficult cases, we show the tissue to another pathologist, perhaps, or even I might send the slides in the mail to uh, someone who I know is an expert on the topic I'm having difficulty with, and then we work together to determine the most appropriate diagnosis for the tumor. So just like other cancer doctors might disagree about the best treatment for your cancer, pathologists can also sometimes disagree on a tumor diagnosis. This difference can have a big impact on what additional tests are run on your tumor as far as biomarkers and can have a large impact on what treatment is recommended. And so because of um, this difficulty, I encourage you to talk with your cancer doctors about second opinions in pathology as they often have a very good sense of when a second opinion on a diagnosis may be helpful in their recommendations to you. And so with that, I hope I've given you a good explanation of the role of uh, pathologists like myself in your cancer care, and I'll turn the session back over to Carolyn. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Curran. You really have given us quite a, a wonderful um, information about the role of the pathologist and a lot of the details that perhaps are not common knowledge to um, everyone on the call today and now are and probably will precipitate many questions during the Q&A. So thank you. Excellent presentation. Thank you. 
And our next speaker is Mr. Wynne Burkle. Mr. Burkle is Director of Social Service for the Long Island Office, and he also is the coordinator of our One Cancer Program at Cancer Care. And Mr. Burkle is going to address Cancer Care's free psychosocial programs and services and the role of support groups. It's my pleasure now to share the program over to Mr. Burkle. Thank you, Carolyn. You know, I'm sure most of us remember the time we moved into our first new home, or even our last new home. Many of us were fortunate enough to get a visit from the welcome wagon, or maybe a very helpful neighbor, who helped us find the nearest supermarket, service station, house of worship, school, and all the other services so essential to support our daily life. The more things we were able to connect to in our new neighborhood, the more we felt that we had things under control. Being diagnosed with lung cancer is in some ways very much like moving into a new neighborhood. Our cancer pushes us into a strange and sometimes scary new environment, and we really don't know where anything is and what we can do to get some control over a very difficult change in our lives. Cancer Care, in the role of that good neighbor, provides its popular website, lungcancer.org, to better serve people like you. Rather than burden folks with heavy medical jargon, lungcancer.org has been designed as the first stop for people who find themselves in a new and strange neighborhood of lung cancer. Using simple-to-understand language in a user-friendly web page format, lungcancer.org helps patients and those who care for them learn about the basic facts on lung cancer and its treatment. And there is a special section on clinical trials, which not only helps one learn what they're all about, but also provides a special search tool which can assist in finding the lung cancer clinical trial that matches each patient's individual situation. And if a patient wishes to become involved in a clinical trial, there is a tool that allows them to connect with a specially trained clinical trials manager to help them with that whole process. In addition, LungCancer.org serves as an easy entrance to connect with the many services which Cancer Care has available free of charge for lung cancer patients and those who care for them. Such services include education, Cancer Care's impressive array of Connect Education workshops provide both disease-specific information, such as today's workshop, and workshops on coping with the physical and emotional impact of cancer. Replays of these workshops are available both online at Cancer Care's website, www.cancercare.org, and via your phone. Many folks find it convenient to download these replays to their iPods and MP3 players. Cancer Care's well-known Cancer Care Connect booklets are available free of charge and are packed with up-to-date information on treatments and the latest coping strategies to help cancer patients and those who care for them. We're delighted to have distributed millions of these very popular publications. Cancer Care's website at www.cancercare.org provides a wealth of information on cancer topics and serves as an easy-to-use entry point to Cancer Care's many services. While one is at our website, they can sign up for our free monthly e-newsletter or catch up with our latest informative CopeLink blogs. Cancer Care offers helpful support services which are provided by its professionally trained staff of experienced oncology social workers who are there to assist folks like you in dealing with the many issues which arise from the diagnosis of lung cancer, including assistance with emotional issues in which they assess clients and provide appropriate, helpful psychosocial interventions. 
assistance with practical issues such as financial assistance through Cancer Care's limited financialist program and referrals to the Cancer Care Copay Assistance Foundation and other financial assistance resources. Resource referral in which our social workers refer folks to the many organizations and agencies established to help lung cancer patients. Assistance in navigating the system in which cancer care social workers assist people in understanding how to best manage the many new relationships involved in health care. And assistance with communications in which our workers are skilled at helping folks learn how to best communicate with their health care providers, employers, friends, and family members about their new lung cancer situation. Cancer care social workers provide this assistance in a variety of friendly settings, such as can, can, excuse me, at Cancer Care's national office and its regional offices in the tri-state New York metropolitan area, where folks can receive individual and group counseling face-to-face. -face. Over the phone, where people from across the nation can find immediate assistance by contacting the Cancer Care Helpline, 1-800-813-HOPE-HOPE, and longer-term assistance through individual telephone counseling with a cancer care social worker, as well as connecting with other people in professionally facilitated telephone support groups, and online where people from across the country share concerns in professionally-led online support groups, which are available 24-7 for participation. Our popular support groups, whether for patient or caregiver, and whether they are experienced in face-to-face, -face, online, or telephone modalities, provide the group member with a safe place to share the burdens, feelings, and stress of the role of patient or caregiver and others who are involved in a very similar situation. There's no need to explain yourself in a support group. They know what you're talking about. Group members share wonderfully helpful tips and information on how to best cope with their lung cancer situation. So many of our support group members talk about belonging to that special family which helps them live with, live with lung cancer each day. The professional facilitative skills of cancer care social workers ensure that each support group is maintained as a special place for each and every member. Call us today to learn more about this wonderful resource. You know, I'm sure none of us ever expected to find ourselves moved to the neighborhood of lung cancer. But now that you're here, be assured that Cancer Care, like that good neighbor, is there with you. Connect with us at www.cancercare.org or calling us at 1-800-813-HOPE, H-O-P-E. Thank you. Thank you so much, uh, Ms. Merkel. That was ex excellent. And now we have time for questions. We actually have a lot of time for questions. And I'm going to ask um, um, actually uh, uh, Candace to explain to all of you how to queue up for questions. And this is a great time to ask those questions that you really want to ask your healthcare team but really want to have a practice run or get some extra information to have some more general information about the topics our speakers addressed today. So. Um, we definitely welcome your questions here, and I'm going to ask um, Candace to explain to all of you how to queue up for questions, and we'll take as many of your questions as possible. If you don't get your questions, please know that um, I will give you instructions at the end of the call how to get your questions answered um, if we don't get to them. Uh, so but let's, let's start now. So, Candace. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star and then the number one key on your touchtone telephone. 
If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. And our first question comes from Allison S. Your line is now open. Uh, thank you. I'm in the conference period. I, I was diagnosed with fake non-small cell lung cancer endo, uh, EGIF positive in June of 2014, and um, type stage 3A. And so I went on a traditional chemotherapy and uh, radiation treatment. And um, then the following June, unfortunately, you know, the cancer returned into my brain. And so then I went to uh, Tarsiva, and I've been on the Tarsiva since about in September. What I'm, what I'm curious is, um, would I have been, should I, well, I sort of remember after the fact, but why wasn't I eligible for the Tarsiva when I was at the state? Allison, um, and what is your question? Why isn't she, uh, the woman is listening, why is she not eligible? Was she not eligible for Tarsiva up front at stage 3A? Okay, excellent. So that's an excellent question. Um, and, um, uh, so I'm going to ask our speakers if they can address this in a general way. And Dr. Wakeley, um, is there, could you address this? Um, sure. So that's a, a great question, and I'm going to um, answer it a little bit more broadly. So the targeted drugs we know can be very effective for patients with metastatic cancer, but unfortunately, as much as they, they help, they're not a cure. Um, and I mean, it helps people keep living, and our goal for patients with metastatic disease is to keep people living their lives for as long as possible, feeling well. When we're dealing with earlier stages of cancer, we're hoping to be able to cure. And the treatments that we know can cure, again, lots of variations by stage and whatnot, are going to be surgery or radiation, and the chemotherapy can help in some settings. But we've never shown that these targeted drugs actually help cure. Um, and so there have been a lot of trials looking at that. Um, very few of them do we have all the results back for. Um, the first trial that looked at giving an EGFR-targeted drug after chemotherapy and radiation actually did not show that there was benefit to giving that EGFR drug. Now, the study was in all comers, not just people that had the EGFR gene mutation in their tumor. We don't have data that looks specifically at that question, but the fact that the other trial was completely negative obviously leads us to be cautious in recommending giving those drugs even when someone does have an EGFR gene mutation. The other data comes um, from trials where patients have had surgery for earlier stages of cancer and then if they have an EGFR gene mutation in their tumor are, um, are given the EGFR targeted drug or not. And again, we don't have big trials that have been completed yet. The ones so far don't don't show us that we actually can improve cure by doing that. They do seem to imply that we maybe will uh, spread out the time to when the cancer might come back. But if people do have an EGFR mutation and then the cancer comes back, as, um, as the speaker mentioned, the EGFR drugs can be very effective at that time. So while there is still controversy and there's still actually some very big clinical trials ongoing, the largest in the United States is called the ALCHEMIST trial. Um, and those studies are looking at this idea of should we give an EGFR-targeted drug to someone with an EGFR mutation in their tumor after surgery, 
Um, we don't yet know that that's really the right thing to do, and there are also studies being done in Asia asking the same question. For stage three, after chemoradiation, we don't currently have as big of a study looking at that, but we're going to try to learn from the surgical studies what we should do in that setting. But right now, it's really not a standard recommendation to do that. So in terms of um, compassionate use, or <clears throat> if the person appears to benefit from it, or um, does that play a role at all, or in individual cases, or? Well, you keep in mind, number this, right, so the question was about for people who are theoretically cured because they've either had a surgery for their cancer, or in this uh, particular case, they've had com completed chemotherapy and radiation to trying to cure a stage three. In that setting, when there's no known disease, the question is, do these drugs improve the cure? Do they make it less likely for the cancer to come back? And that's the question we don't have an answer to. We do not know that those drugs improve cure. They might spread out the time to when the cancer comes back. But that also means that you're giving the drugs to a lot of people who don't need it because their cancer was never going to come back. So then you, you have the question of giving the drugs to people where many of them are already cured, and for those where it does come back, you can then give those targeted drugs at that time. So that was the question. And um, as you can hear as I went through, there's, there's still a lot of questions remaining, and there are certainly differences of opinion. But if you, um, the standard of care would not to be to give those drugs after surgery or after definitive chemotherapy radiation for stage three. And, and so the participation in a clinical trial would be an option, if, if I hear that yes. correctly? Or, yes. And do you want to say a bit about the clinical trial concept in terms of we, how they, that's important for people to know about? Or? Um, sure. Because, um, because there is controversy, because we don't know the truth, there is a clinical trial. And this trial is called the Alchemist Study. It's open um, across the United States uh, and, and I think more broadly even. And patients who have had a surgery particularly with the adenocarcinoma type of lung cancer, can have their tissue tested um, through the, uh, basically through the U.S. government as part of a, this cooperative group trial, um, and looking specifically for EGFR and ALK. If EGFR or ALK are found, then uh, the, the person is offered the opportunity to get that drug or a placebo. And I know patients have, a lot of people have strong feelings about placebos, but the truth of the matter is that when out doing these trials, we assume we know the answers, and there have been many, many studies in the past where the placebo arm did as well and sometimes better than the new drug um, because that's the reason we have to do the trials is we don't always know the answer. So it's a randomized trial asking that question as to whether the folks who get the targeted drug are actually going to be more likely to be cured than people who don't. Um, the other part of that study, this Alchemist trial, it just got changed last week, and so that people who don't have EGFR or ALK are then um, have the possibility of getting a, one of the immune drugs, one of the PD-1 targeted drugs. Um, and there are other trials also, other trials, not just that one, looking at some of the other immune targeted drugs in that setting after surgery, as well as there was one after combined chemotherapy and radiation. So those will be open at many places. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much. Very comprehensive. Does anyone else want to add anything or any other thoughts here? And, and when do you want to comment on this, just in terms of support group discussions uh, around this issue? It, it, it is an issue. I, I was really grateful for Dr. Wakeley's explanation because in, in support groups you have folks who are to receive a patient as 
well, uh, the EGFR drug patients, um, as, as well as folks who are on standard treatment. And, and there's a great deal of, of interest and sometimes concern about uh, why some people got the treatments that they had. Um, I think that the explanation w w was excellent. And I'll certainly be taking it back to my support group. Excellent. Thank you, and, and thank you, Dr. Wakeley. And, so, um, and thank you for the uh, question. It was an excellent question and obviously um, an important one. And, um, and we're hopeful that in future programs we'll have more information based on the clinical trial information. So I hope that's helpful. And I'm sure I'll hear from Allison more information about this. Um, and um, we have another question in queue, I believe. And our next question comes from Diana G. Your line is now open. Hi. Um, can, can somebody hear me? Yes, absolutely. Diana. Okay, great. Great. Um, I have small cell lung cancer, and I'm currently being evaluated uh, for Rova-T as a drug. My tissue is being tested for the DLL3 biomarker um, or tissue marker. Are there any other developments um, having to do with biomarkers and small cell lung cancer? Excellent question. Dr. Gaynor, do you want to address that? Yeah, I think that, that is an excellent question, and, and you already alluded to one biomarker that is being explored in small cell. Uh, the first thing I'd say is that um, uh, we actually do differentiate uh, small cell from non-small cell for a couple of different reasons. One, and I think Dr. Kerr can comment on this, but they look fundamentally different underneath the microscope. But also, they behave differently, and uh, they also have different sets of genetic changes. And most of the genetic changes that we've seen in small cell have not been as readily targetable with these pill-based therapies as we've seen for non-small cell lung cancer. And so we've had to think about different approaches. Uh, you, you've referred to, to one such approach, which is um, trying to take something on the surface of the cancer cell and actually com uh, taking an antibody um, that can recognize it and basically tagging a little smart bomb of chemotherapy uh, attached to it to try to deliver chemotherapy directly to a cancer cell. I'd say the other major approach that's being used in small cell right now is trying to target the immune system. Uh, last year at, at ASCO, which is our, our annual meeting, there were two different uh, studies looking at different ways of targeting the breaks on the immune system. We call these checkpoint inhibitors. Um, and the most common ones that you'll hear about are PD-1 or PD-L1 inhibitors. They're kind of targeting the same, different sides of the same coin. Um, and these are uh, drugs either alone or in combination with another immunotherapy have shown some promising results. I think right now, though, since they're not approved, we're still doing the confirmatory studies to explore the activity in, at different points along the course in small cells. So I would say that that's the other uh, class of agents that's beginning to show benefit. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and um, uh, these are really wonderful questions. I have to say this is a great audience. And we have one from one of our um, uh, online participants. Um, are there any notable side effects that occur when applying diagnostic technologies um, from Karen? Um, uh, so um, 
Dr. Kerr, do you want to address this? And, or and if you want, I'm not going to ask that. If you want to start, Dr. Kerr, any particular side effects that can occur with? Um, I guess I maybe don't understand the question fully. Are, are you wanting to address side effects related to the targeted therapies or side effects? No, actually to the, um, just to the, um, having the test done. The having the test done. The done, the biomarkers or diagnostic tests, any of the tests that are done to yeah. well, inform. So there are risks and benefits um, to undergoing biopsies to obtain the tissue for these biomarkers, certainly. Um, even with very fine needles, um, sometimes even the fine needle aspirates are performed by pathologists if the lesion is close to the skin. Um, there are um, some uh, small risk of, of bleeding and infection associated with those biopsies, but as far as after we obtain the tissue uh, for the testing, then once the tissue uh, leaves the body and we're actually performing the testing, um, because it's separate from the patient, there's really no uh, additional risk to the patient after we've removed the tissue for the testing. Um, I did touch a little bit on variants of uncertain significance. Um, sometimes that can be an inconvenience for the patient um, if we do run one of these very large panel tests rather than just the simple EGFR or ALK test. Um, there are some uh, cancer tests that look for a variety of mutations throughout the tumor, and sometimes we find these variants that we're not exactly sure what they mean in the tumor as far as um, what can, you know, what potential targeted therapy could be used and the data that's out there might only be experimental. And so in those situations, the oncologist and the patient might face a difficult situation of having uncertain test results where they don't know exactly uh, which direction to go. And so that might be sort of a difficult decision, but as far as any physical risk of, you know, after the tissue is removed and the testing is done, I don't. I don't think there is any. Awesome. And uh, um, I'm just going to extend it to Dr. Wakeley or Dr. Gaynor. Do you want to add anything to that, or is that pretty much? No, I think the, I mean, the physical risks come from the getting the tissue, so from the biopsies and risk there, and then the, the blood test, it's just a, it's a blood draw, and so, of course, that can be uncomfortable, um, but usually not otherwise dangerous. But um, I think the points that were just raised are really important that, it's, if you get a test and you don't know what to do with the result or the result's uncertain, that can lead to a lot of anxiety. And so while it's not a physical harm, it's certainly not one that we should ignore. And so as we talk about all these exciting tests and how it can help with treatment, it's also important to think about the other side where it is possible to overtest and have information that we don't really know what to do with um, or information that's not always perfect. Um, you know, no test is 100%, and so it's the importance of stepping back and redoing tests if necessary and, and not necessarily over-testing. Yeah, I agree with that. That's a really, really good way of stating it. And I would just add, I would just add one, one point, and I, I don't know if we've discussed it this far, is that, you know, for, for many of the tests that we've been discussing, things like EGFR and ALK testing, we think that those are present in, in every, every cancer cell. Um, but as people go on targeted therapies and may develop resistance and we try to repeat biopsies and, and look whether there are additional biomarkers, additional changes, what we've found is that there can actually be heterogeneity, meaning that 
one location may have that marker, whereas another location may not. And so it just uh, means that, you know, just because a biopsy is negative doesn't always mean that it's not there. It just means that it wasn't in the biopsy. And so I think that's why, like, blood-based tests can be complementary and may allow us to look at a larger collection of the tumor um, to sample that, that heterogeneity uh, across different sites of the cancer. And just the last question, which really probably I'm going to ask all of you to weigh in on, and it's kind of been a couple of questions coming in online about this one, so um, really, um, you know, how does one assemble a team? Um, kind of like all of you today, that really, um, how, depending on where one lives in the country, how do you find experts, because you're really talking about sort of expert decision-making here, um, and care also. Um, and so if each of you would just weigh in on that, um, what, how, because it's very hard for people often to find the, the, the best team that they can to treat them. And so um, Dr. Wakeley, if you want to start with that, I know it's kind of a complicated question. but. Um, that is. I mean, we uh, the speakers are all from um, academic centers, and so by definition, an academic center is a large area where you have people who have an expertise in an area. And so we all have uh, tumor boards where we can all meet as a group. Our, our tumor board is once a week, and the pathologists come and the radiologists come, as well as the surgeons and the medical oncologists and radiation oncologists. So we can really discuss any patients where we have questions, and patients are also able to come and be seen uh, that day if they want to get a feel like they're really getting that full multidisciplinary discussion, and many centers have similar things. I think for people who are in smaller community practices, a lot of those hospitals do also have tumor boards, but there may be only like once a month. And so I think it's important for a, a person, patient, to talk with their primary treating physician and just say, hey, have you talked to your colleagues? Or do you feel that a, a second opinion is warranted? And while it can be a, a, a trek for a lot of people to get to an academic center, it's probably worthwhile doing that at initial diagnosis just to make sure that everything's uh, on, on track. And once that's been established, most of the treatments can certainly be done just as well in a community center as at an academic center, other than clinical trials, but even for those, a lot of uh, community sites have those open also. Awesome. And Dr. Gaynor? Yeah, I would say our, our practice is, is quite similar um, being at an academic institution. Um, what, I, what I tend to tell patients is, you know, I think there are a couple important points uh, where it, it's worthwhile to get a second opinion, and it's also worthwhile for my own patients to, to get a second opinion. I think that the big thing is um, to, to have multiple sets of eyes on you, and, um, you know, it's our routine within my group. We, we all communicate and, and discuss if there are complex cases and having open lines of communication. So what I generally tell people is at the time of initial diagnosis, it's always helpful to have just a, a second, set, set, second set of eyes on, on you and just to get a, a general sense of, of treatment approach going forward. And then I generally ask people and, and recommend that anytime there's a big change in care, so anytime transitioning from one therapy to another, I think it's always a good point to stop and say, why don't, why don't I get a second opinion at that point? And that's what I, I generally do with my patients. And 
in between, you know, I'm happy to see them regularly, but also um, there are certainly therapies that can be delivered locally um, as with, uh, you know, open lines of com communication between me and, and the local oncologist. Um, and Dr. Kerr, do you want to? Yeah, sure, I'll weigh in on that. Um, so I agree with the, the uh, other two speakers on this point. I think it's hard to know as a patient if you're sort of a routine case or a complicated case, uh, and some of that gets borne out more in, in second opinions, and so I think if you're able to, you know, travel and get access to a second opinion, that can really be a great avenue just to talk more about your disease and make sure that, you know, you're comfortable with what's being recommended at the local level. And, you know, a model where I work uh, at Mayo Clinic is very similar to that. So sometimes we'll see patients in, in person here and we'll talk about them at a tumor board that has a lot of different types of doctors, including radiologists and pathologists and oncologists, to come up with a treatment plan. And then we'll give that treatment plan back to the community doctor so that the patient doesn't have to travel so far for treatment. And then if there's a big change, of course, there's communication up to the, up to the experts and, and back. And I think the important part from a pathology standpoint is often that that second opinion also comes automatically with a pathology second opinion that can confirm um, that the diagnosis is also correct uh, so that we're all talking about the same tumor type and, the, you know, the same testing uh, needs to happen on that tumor. The other thing that might be available to you, depending on where you are, is the concept of an, of an e-opinion. Um, so something we use at our center is that if there's sort of a difficult question at the community level with your community doctors, um, they can submit your case history online to a doctor to review, and sometimes that also comes also with an actual physical review of your tissue by a pathologist at the academic center uh, who reviews everything and just sort of says, you know, gives an opinion on whether they think it's reasonable or gives suggestions. So sometimes that second opinion can happen even without um, visiting in person. Thank you so much. Excellent. And Owen, do you want to just comment just in terms of the group? Uh, well, I think, uh, first off, that all of the information we've just gotten about second opinions and academic cancer centers are, are very, very helpful. Uh, but also keep in mind, as I mentioned earlier, that uh, our social workers are, can be very helpful in helping people navigate the system. And we can be helpful in helping folks uh, identify who should be on a team and how to create that team, and we can also be very helpful in helping people create that all-important list of questions that need to be asked uh, for the information that people so desperately need so that they feel they have a sense of control over the situation. Excellent. Well, I want to thank all of our speakers. You have been extraordinary. This is an extraordinary call, I have to say, and I have to say all of you who've asked questions, both on the telephone and online, extraordinary as well, really. Um, and, of course, those of you who have been listening as well. I, I want to remind you this is a one-hour workshop, and in putting a program like this, we recognize that you all have many needs that go far beyond the scope of a one-hour program. And so with that in mind, I just want to reiterate for all of you that if you do have a medical question that you did not get a chance to ask during today's program, I would very much recommend that you call the National Cancer Institute at 1-800-422-6237, and that's 1-800-422-6237.
However, if you're interested in accessing some of the services from our oncology social workers at Cancer Care, um, either practical financial assistance or counseling services, whether it be one-on-one -on -one or in a support group, an online or telephone support group, or listening to one of our workshops or order the publication or just to visit our website, certainly do contact our social workers here at Cancer Care at 1-800-813-4673 or visit our website for those of you internationally or prefer to pose your question um, or visit us on our website at www.cancercare.org. And for those of you, uh, Nellie, who asked at the very end, how can I listen to this program again? And I know many of you have that question. This program is available. Um, tomorrow as a podcast that you'll be able to listen to it again, share it with other people that you know, perhaps with support groups, other people that might be interested in listening. So absolutely do, um, do know that these programs are available both um, online to listen to again, usually within a day, and also as a telephone replay within a day as well. Again, I want to thank you all for your participation today. I don't want anyone to leave this call thinking that you're alone. I want you to now know that you're part of the cancer care world, and we're happy to help you. And all our services are free, so simply call us. We're simply a phone call or a mouse click away in terms of your computer. Thank you all. And I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes today's workshop, and you may all disconnect. Have a great day, everyone.